Section 9 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 3, Chapters 1 through 4. Book 3, Chapter 1, in which I return to my right age and encounter a common object of the country. And so, when the days of my mourning for Nicolette were ended, and in this sentence I pass over letters to and fro, letters wild from Nicolette, letters wise from Alcassin, letters explanatory and apologetic from The Obstacle, how the Major General had suddenly come home quite unexpectedly, and compelled her to explain Nicolette's absence, etc., etc. Dear Obstacle, I should rather have enjoyed a pilgrimage with her, too. I found myself one afternoon again upon the road. The day had been very warm and dusty, and had turned sleepy toward tea-time. I had now pretty clearly in my mind what I wanted. This time it was, all other things equal, to be a woman who had suffered. And to this end I had, before starting out once more, changed my age back again at the inn, and written Etat Thirty, after my name in the visitor's book. As a young man, I was an evident failure, and so, having made the countersign, I was speedily transformed to my old self, and I must say that it was a most comfortable feeling, something like getting back again into an old coat or an old pair of shoes. I never wanted to be young again as long as I lived. Youth was too much like the Sunday clothes of one's boyhood. Moreover, I had a secret conviction that the woman I was now in search of would prefer one who had had some experience at being a man, who would bring her not the green plums of his love, but the cunningly ripened nectarines, a man to whom love was something of an art as well as an inspiration. It was in this frame of mind that I came upon the following scene. The lane was a very cloistral one, with a ribbon of gravelly road, bordered on each side with a rich margin of turf and a scramble of blackberry bushes, green turf banks and dwarf oak trees, making a rich and plenteous shade. My attention was caught firstly by a bicycle, lying carelessly on the turf, and secondly, and lastly, by a graceful woman's figure, recumbent and evidently sleeping against the turf bank, well tucked in amongst the afternoon shadows. My coming had not aroused her, and so I stole nearer to her on tiptoe. She was a pretty woman, of a striking modern type, tall, well-proportioned, strong, I should say, with a good complexion that had evidently been made just a little better. But her most striking feature was an opulent mass of dark red hair, which had fallen in some disorder, and made quite a pillow for her head. Her hat was off, lying in its veil by her side, and a certain general abandon of her figure, which was clothed in a short cloth skirt, cut with that unmistakable touch which we call style, betokened weariness, 
that could no longer wait for rest. Poor child! She was tired out. She must never be left to sleep on there, for she seemed good to sleep till midnight. I turned to her bicycle, and examining it with the air of a man who had won silver cups in his day, I speedily discovered what had been the mischief. The tire of the front wheel had been pierced, and a great thorn was protruding from the place. Evidently this had been too much for poor Rosalind, and it was not unlikely that she had cried herself to sleep. I bent over her to look. Yes, there were traces of tears. Poor thing! Then I had a kindly human impulse. I would mend the tire. Having attended ambulance classes, do it very quietly so that she wouldn't hear, like the fairy cobblers who used to mend people's boots while they slept, and then wait in ambush to watch the effect upon her when she awoke. What do you think of this idea? But one important detail I have omitted from my description of the sleeper. Her left hand lay gloveless, and of the four rings on her third finger one was a wedding ring. <gasps> Such red hair! And a wedding ring! I exclaimed inwardly. How this woman must have suffered! End of Book Three, Chapter One The Quest of the Golden Girl Book Three, Chapter Two In Which I Heal a Bicycle and Come to the Wheel of Pleasure Moving the bicycle a little way, so that my operations upon it might not arouse her, I had soon made all right again, and when I laid it once more where she had left it, she was still sleeping as sound as ever. She had only to sleep long enough, a sly thought suggested, to necessitate her ending her day's journey at the same inn as myself, some five miles on the road. One virtue at least the reader will allow to this history. We are seldom far away from an inn in its pages. When I thought of that I sat stiller than ever, hardly daring to turn over the pages of Apuleius, which I had taken from my knapsack to beguile the time, and, I confess, to give my eyes some other occupation than the dangerous one of gazing upon her face, dangerous in more ways than one, but particularly dangerous at the moment, because, as everybody knows, a steady gaze upon a sleeping face is apt to awake the sleeper, and she wasn't to be disturbed. No, she mustn't waken before seven at the latest, I said to myself, holding my breath and starting at terror at every noise. Once a great noisy bee was within an ace of waking her, but I caught him with inspired dexterity, and he buzzed around her head no more. But despite the providential loneliness of the road, there were one or two terrors which could not be disposed of so summarily. The worst of all was a heavy miller's cart, which one could hardly crush to silence in one's handkerchief, but it went so slowly that both men and horses were so sleepy that they passed unheard and unnoticing. A sprightly tramp promised greater difficulty, and nothing but some ferocious pantomime and a shilling persuaded him to forego a choice fantasia of cockney humour. A poor, tired Italian organ-grinder, 
tramping with an equally tired monkey along the dusty roads had to be bought off in a similar manner though he only cost sixpence he gave me a southern smile and shrug of comprehension as one acquainted with the affairs of the heart which was a relief after the cockney tramp's impudent expression of no doubt a precisely similar sentiment and then at last just as my watch pointed to six fifty how well i remembered the exact moment rosalind awoke suddenly as women and children do sitting straight up on the instant and putting up her hands to her tousled hair with a half-startled where am i when her hair was once more respectable she gave her skirts a shake bent sideways to pull up her stockings and tighten her garters looked at her watch and then with an exclamation at the lateness of the hour went over with an air of desperate determination to her bicycle now for this horrid puncture were the first words i was to hear fall from her lips she sought for the wound in the india rubber with growing bewilderment goodness was her next exclamation why there's nothing wrong with it can i have been dreaming i hope your dreams have been pleasanter than that i ventured at this moment to stammer rising a startling apparition from my ambush behind a mound of brambles and before she had time to take in the situation i added that i hoped she'd excuse my little pleasantry and told her how i had noticed her and the wounded bicycle etc etc as the reader can well imagine without giving me the trouble of writing it all out she was sweetness itself in the instant excuse you she said i should think so who wouldn't have you can tell the load you've taken off my mind I'm sure I must have groaned in my sleep, for I confess I cried myself to sleep over it. I thought so, I said with gravity, and eyes that didn't dare to smile outright till they had permission, which, however, was not long withheld them. How did you know? Oh, intuition, of course. Who wouldn't have cried themselves to sleep, and so tired, too? You're a nice, sympathetic man, anyhow, she laughed. What a pity you don't bicycle yes i said i would give a thousand pounds for a bicycle at this moment you ought to get a good one for that she laughed all bright parts nickel i suppose indeed you should get a real silver frame and gold handlebars for that don't you think well it would be nice all the same to have your company for a few miles especially as it's growing dark she added especially as it's growing dark i repeated you will be going much further to-night have you fixed on your inn i continued innocently she had but that was any town too far to reach to-night after her long sleep you must have wakened me she said yes it was stupid of me not to have thought of it i answered offering no explanation of the dead bee which at the moment i spied a little way in the grass and saying nothing of the merry tramp and the melancholy musician then when we talked ends and thus she fell so beautifully into the pit which i had digged for her and it was presently arranged that she should ride on to the wheel of pleasure and order a dinner which she was to do me the honour of sharing with me i was to follow on foot as speedily as i might be and it was with a high heart that i strode along the sunset lane hearing for some time the chiming of her bell in front of me till she had wheeled it quite out of hearing 
and it was lost in the distance. I never did a better five miles in my life. End of Book Three, Chapter Two The Quest of the Golden Girl Book Three, Chapter Three Two Town Mice at a Country Inn when I reached the Wheel of Pleasure, I found Rosalind awaiting me in the coffee-room, looking fresh from a traveller's toilet, and with the welcome news that dinner was on the way. By the time I had washed off the day's dust, it was ready, and a merry meal it proved. Rosalind had none of the Alastor's objections to the wine-list, so we drank an excellent champagne and as there seemed to be no one in the hotel but ourselves we made ourselves at home and talked and laughed none daring to make us afraid at first on sitting down to table we had grown momentarily shy with one of those sudden freaks of self-consciousness which occasionally surprise one when midway in some slightly unconventional situation to which the innocence of nature has led us we realize it for an instance and no more positively i think that in the embarrassment of that instance i had made some inspired remark to rosalind about the lovely country which lay dreamingly in the afterglow outside our window oh yes i remember the very words they were what a heavenly landscape or something equally striking yes rosalind had answered it is almost as beautiful as the strand if i had known her better i should have exclaimed you dear and i think it possible that i did say something to that effect perhaps you dear woman at all events the veil of self-consciousness was rent in twain at that remark and our spirits rushed together at this touch of london nature thus unexpectedly revealed london i hadn't realized till this moment how i had been missing it all these days of rustication and my heart went out to it with a vast homesickness yes the strand i repeated tenderly the strand at night indeed yes what is more beautiful in the whole world she joined in ardently the wild torrents of light the passionate human music the hansoms the white shirts and shawled heads the theatres don't speak of them or you'll make me cry said rosalind the little suppers after the theatre please don't she cried it is cruel and I saw that her eyes were indeed glistening with tears. But, of course, I continued to give a slight turn aside in our talk. It is very wrong of us to have such sophisticated tastes. We ought to love these lonely hills and meadows far more. The natural man revels in solitude, and wants no wittier company than birds and flowers wordsworth made a constant companion of a pet daisy he seldom went abroad without one or two trotting at his side and a skylark would keep shelley in society for a week but they were poets retorted rosalind 
You don't call poets natural. Why, they are the most unnatural of men. The natural person loves the society of his kind, whereas the poet runs away from it. Well, of course there are poets, and poets, poets sociable, and poets very unsociable. Wordsworth made the country, but Lamb made the town, and there is quite a band of poets nowadays who share his distaste for mountains, and take London for their muse. If you'll promise not to cry again, I'll recall some lines by a friend of mine, which were written for town tastes like ours. But perhaps you know them. It will gratify my friend to learn that Rosalind had the sweet verses I refer to by heart, and started off humming. Ah, London, London, our delight! Great flower that opens but at night! Great city of the midnight sun, whose day begins when day is done! Like dragonflies, the handsome hover, with jewelled eyes to catch the lover, and so on, with a gusto of appreciation that must have been very gratifying to the author, had he been present. Thus perceiving a taste for a certain modern style of poetry in my companion, I bethought me of a poem which I had written on the roadside a few days before, and which, I confess, I was eager to confide to some sympathetic ear. I was diffident of quoting yet after such lines as Rosalind had recalled, but by the time we had reached our coffee I plucked up courage to mention it. I had, however, the less diffidence in that it would have technical interest for her, being indeed no other than a song of cycling adieu, which had been suggested by one of those alarmous danger-posts always placed at the top of the pleasantest hills, sternly warning the cyclist that this hill is dangerous. Just as in life there is always some minatory notice-board frowning upon us in the direction we most desire to take. But I omit further preface and produce the poem. This hill is dangerous, I said, as we rode on together, through sunny miles and sunny miles of Surrey heather. This hill is dangerous. Don't you think we'd better walk it? Or sit it out, more dangerous still. She smiled. And talk it? Are you afraid? She turned and cried, so very brave and sweetly. Oh, that brave smile! that takes the heart captive completely. Afraid, I said, deep in her eyes, recklessly gazing, for you I'd ride into the sun and die all a-blazing. I never yet saw hill, I said, and was afraid to take it. I never saw a foolish law and feared to break it. Who fears a hill or fears a law with you beside him? Who fears, dear star, the wildest sea with you to guide him? Then came the hill, a cataract, a dusty swirl before us. The world stood round, a village world, in fearful chorus. Sure to be killed, sure to be killed, 
Oh, fools, how dare you? Sure to be killed, and service right. Ah, love, but were we? The hill was dangerous, we knew, and knew we must take it. The law was strong, that too we knew, yet dared to break it. And those who would fain know how we fared, follow and find us. Safe on the hills, with all the world, safely behind us. Rosalind smiled as I finished. I am afraid, she said, the song is as dangerous as the hill. Of course it has more meaning than one. Perhaps, too, I assented, and the second more important than the first. Uh, maybe, I smiled. However, I hope you like it. Rosalind was very reassuring on that point, and then, musingly, as if half to herself, but that hill is dangerous, you know, and young people would do well to pay attention to the danger board. Her voice shook as she spoke the last two or three words, and I looked at her in some surprise. Yes, I know it, she added, her voice quite broken and before I realized what was happening, there she was, with her beautiful head down on the table, and sobbing as if her heart would break. Forgive me for being such a fool, she managed to wring out. Now usually I never interrupt a woman when she's crying, as it only encourages her to continue, but there was something so unexpected and mysterious about Rosalind's sudden outburst that it was impossible not to be sympathetic. I endeavored to soothe her with such words as seemed fitting, and as she was crying, because she really couldn't help it, she didn't cry long. These tears proved, what certain indications of manner had already hinted to me, that Rosalind was more artless than I had at first supposed. She was a woman of the world, in that she lived in it and loved its gaieties, but there was still in her heart no little of the child, as is there not in the hearts of all good women, or men. And this you will realize when I tell you the funny little story which she presently confided to me as the cause of her tears. End of Book Three, Chapter Three The Quest of the Golden Girl Book Three, Chapter Four Marriage a la Mode For Rosalind was no victim of the monster man, as you may have supposed her, no illustration of his immemorial perfidies. On the contrary, she was one half of a very happy marriage, and in a sense her sufferings at the moment were merely theoretical if one may so describe the sufferings caused by a theory. But no doubt the reader would prefer a little straightforward narrative. Well, Rosalind and Orlando, as we may as well call them, are two newly married young people who've been married, say, a year, and who find themselves at the end of it loving each other more than at the beginning. For you are to suppose two of the tenderest most devoted hearts that ever beat as one. However, they are young people of the introspective modern type with a new theory for everything. 
about marriage and the law of happiness in that blessed estate, they boasted the latest philosophical patents. To them, among other matters, the secret of unhappy marriages was as simple as could be. It was in nothing more or less than the excessive familiarity of ordinary married life, and the lack of personal freedom allowed both parties to the contract. Thus love grew commonplace, and the unhappy ones too weary of each other by excessive and enforced association. This was obvious enough, and the remedy as obvious, separate bedrooms, and a month's holiday in each year to be spent apart. Notoriously, all people of quality had separate bedrooms, and see how happy they were. These, and similar other safeguards of individual liberty, they had in mock earnest drawn up and signed on their marriage eve as a sort of supplemental wedding service. It would not be seemly to inquire how far certain of these conditions had been kept, how often, for example, Orlando's little hermit's bed had really needed remaking during those twelve months. Answer, ye birds of the air that lie in your snug nest so close, so close through the tender summer nights, and maybe with two or three little ones besides. Unless, indeed, ye too have felt the influence of the zeitgeist, and have taken to sleeping in separate nests. The condition with which alone we have here to concern ourselves was one which provided that each of the two lovers, hereafter to be called the husband of the one part and the wife of the other part, solemnly bound themselves to spend one calendar month of each year out of each other's society, with full and free liberty to spend it wheresoever, with whomsoever, and howsoever they pleased, and that this condition was rigidly to be maintained whatever immediate effort it might cost, as the parties thereto believed, that so would their love the more likely maintain an endearing tenderness and an unwearied freshness. And to this did Orlando and his Rosalind set their hands and hearts and lips. Now, wisdom is all very well till the time comes to apply it, and as that month of June approached in which they had designed to give their love a holiday, they found their courage growing less and less. Their love didn't want a holiday, and when Orlando had referred to the matter during the early days of May, Rosalind had burst into tears and begged him to reconsider a condition which they had made before they really knew what wedded love was. But Orlando, though in tears himself, so Rosalind averred, had a higher sense of their duty to their ideal, and was able, though in tears, to beg her to look beyond the moment, and realized what a little self-denial now might mean in the years to come. They hadn't kept any other of their resolutions, thus Rosalind let it out, and this must be kept. And thus it had come about, that Orlando had gone off for his month's holiday with a charming girl, who, with the cynic, will no doubt account for his stern adherence to duty, and Rosalind had gone off for hers with a pretty young man, whom she had liked well enough to go to the theatre and to supper with, 
a young man who was indeed a dear friend and a vivacious, sympathetic companion, but whom, as a substitute for Orlando, she immediately began to hate. Such is the female heart. The upshot of the experiment, so far as she was concerned, was that she had quarrelled with her companion and gone off in search of her husband, on which search she was embarked at the moment of my encountering her. The tears, therefore, that is, the first lot of tears by the roadside, had not been all on account of the injured bicycle, you see. Now the question was, how had Orlando been getting on? I had an intuition that in his case the experiment had proved more enjoyable, but I am not one to break the bruised reed by making such a suggestion. On the contrary, I expressed my firm conviction that Orlando was probably even more miserable than she was. Do you really think so? she asked eagerly, her poor miserable face growing bright a moment with hope and gratitude. Undoubtedly, I answered sententiously, to put the case on the most general principles, apart from Orlando's great love for you, it is an eternal truth of masculine sentiment that man always longs for the absent woman. Are you quite sure? asked Rosalind, with an unconvinced half-smile. Absolutely. I thought, she continued, that it was just the other way around, that it was presence and not absence that made the heart of man grow fonder, and that if a man's best girl, so to say, was away, he was able to make himself very comfortable with his second best. In some cases, of course, it's true, I answered unmoved, but with a love like yours and Orlando's, it's quite different. Oh, do you really mean it? Certainly I do. And your mistake has been in supposing that an experiment, which no few everyday married couples would be only too glad to try, was ever meant for two such lovebirds as you. Laws and systems are meant for the unhappy and the untractable, not for people like you, for whom love makes its own laws. Yes, that is what we used to say, and indeed we thought this was one of love's laws, this experiment, as you call it. But it was quite a mistake, I went on in my character as a matrimonial oracle. Love never made a law so cruel, a law that would rob true lovers of each other's society for a whole month in a year, stretching them on the rack of absence. There my period broke down, so I began another, less ambitiously planned. A whole month in a year! Think what that would mean in a lifetime! How long do you expect to live and love each other? Say another fifty years at most? Well, fifty years are fifty! Fifty months equal four twelves or forty-eight, and two over four years and two months. Yes, out of the short life God allows even for the longest love, you would voluntarily throw away four years and two months. This impressive calculation had a great effect on poor Rosalind, and it is a secondary matter that it and its accompanying wisdom may have less weight with the reader, as for the moment Rosalind 
was my one concern. "'But, of course, we have perfect trust in each other,' said Rosalind presently, with charming illogicality. "'Oh, no doubt,' I said. "'But love, like a good householder, <clears throat> does well not to live too much on trusts. "'But surely love means perfect trust,' said Rosalind. "'Well, theoretically, yes. Practically, no.' On the contrary, it means exactly the opposite. Trust, perfect trust, with loved ones far away. No, it is an inhuman ideal, and the more one loves, the less one lives up to it. If not, what do these tears mean? Oh, no, Rosalind retorted with a flush. You mustn't say that. I trust Orlando absolutely. It isn't that. It's simply that I can't bear to be away from him. What women mean by trusting might afford a subject for an interesting disquisition. However, I forbore to pursue the matter, and answered Rosalind's remark in a practical spirit. Well, then, I said, if that's all, the thing to do is fine, Orlando. Tell him that you cannot bear it, and spend the rest of your holiday, you and he, together. That's what I thought said Rosalind. Unfortunately, I continued, owing to your foolish arrangement not to tell each other where you are going, and not to write, as being incompatible with perfect trust, you don't know where Orlando is at the present moment. No, but I have a good guess, said Rosalind. There's a smart little watering place, not so many miles from here, called Yellow Sands. A sort of secret little Monaco, which not many people know of. A wicked, innocent, gay little place where we've often talked of going. I think it's very likely that Orlando has gone there, and that's just where I was going when we met. I will tell the reader more about Yellow Sands in the next chapter. Meanwhile, let us complete Rosalind's arrangements. The result of our conversation was that she was to proceed to Yellow Sands on the morrow, and that I was to follow as soon as possible, so as to be available, should she chance to need any advice, and at all events, to give myself the pleasure of meeting her again. Disarranged, we said good-night, Rosalind with ever such a brightened-up face, of which I thought for half an hour, and then fell asleep to dream of Yellow Sands. End of chapter 4 End of section 9